Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very excited and happy to bring the conversation I had with Walter Veit. Walter is a lecturer, assistant professor in philosophy at the University of Reading. He's also the director of the PPE program as well as the philosophy MA program. He is an external member of the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy and the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Uh, his main interest areas are in the philosophy of cognitive and biological sciences, philosophy of mind, and applied ethics. And he is the author of the latest book, uh, Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, uh, which is the book that we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about frameworks for understanding consciousness in general and the naturalist approach. We talk about the cognitive ethology of Donald Griffith. We talk about pathological complexity thesis. Uh, we talk about where and when in evolution did consciousness arise. I believe that he places it in the Cambrian period. We define consciousness. We talk about subjective experiences and the phenomenology of consciousness. Consciousness and free will. Uh, we talk about how consciousness could be present in other animals. The consciousness profile. Uh, other thinkers that have written about this, integrated information theory, how we can interact with animals more respectfully. I obviously, folks will know that I love all things uh, animals. I talk about them uh, on many episodes here, and I've talked about this uh, very topic of consciousness in animals, what we know, what we could know, what needs to be researched. And Walter was just great. He's, his book is fantastic. And I really appreciated how we were able to kind of get in the details and get in the weeds. He's a, uh, you know, you, you can tell he's a, a teacher. He's so great at explaining things. And so um, I'm glad that we got to get into many of the details um, and really understanding consciousness with uh, rooted in a evolutionary perspective, I think is, is very necessary and important. Um, he's an absolute delight. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and, uh, I'm, I'm very thrilled for everyone to hear it. As always, you can get this episode and all other episodes at convergentdialogues.substack.com. Uh, feel free to, uh, subscribe. Uh, you can also contribute if you, if you'd like. Um, uh, you can also find me on YouTube and, um, please, uh, share and tell all your friends and folks that you might, uh, think, uh, would enjoy the, the podcast. And now I bring you Walter Byte. I am here with Walter Veit. Uh, Walter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, speaking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about animal consciousness. Today. <laughs> yeah, me as well. Me as well. So you have written a wonderful book, A uh, Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness. This is through uh, Rutledge. Uh, this came out just this year, correct? Yeah, I believe it was August mm -hmm. this year. Not July. It's been a while. So, so, so a couple, couple months, couple months ago. <laughs> um, so, why don't we, before we get into all of the wonderful content and all of the things that you discuss in the book, just tell listeners uh, who you are, both uh, professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently. Uh, researching what you're currently uh, doing. Sure. So 
I actually recently gained my PhD from the University of Sydney, also awarded at the end of January this year. I started a postdoc already last year where I've worked more generally on evolution, how evolution is understood among scientists and the lay public. Um, but the goal in my dissertation was very much to understand uh, how consciousness arises as this complex phenomenon nature that at some point evolved, um, which I believed was an important perspective that was neglected in consciousness science at large. And in this dissertation, I had a large synthetic project going on during a lot of different disciplines to make project um, on how we could derive a science of animal consciousness. And now, tomorrow, I'll start as a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Reading. I'm very excited for that. Um, yeah, it's, it's very nice. My partner is also a philosopher. She works at the University of Southampton. So now we've solved the so two-body problem in academia, where academics have difficulty getting jobs in the same region. But yeah, it's very close to each other, so I'm very happy. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Congratulations to uh, both of you. Thanks so much. Okay, so let's let's start with I guess some of the ideas of consciousness. Consciousness is still something that people are investigating. This is something that people are very interested in and they're curious on. And you talk about in the beginning of the book uh, many framings of understanding consciousness. So you have biopsychism. Panpsychism, which is becoming a little bit more popular, it used to be kind of shunned as as kind of fringe, but it's taking a little bit more of a new turn uh, of sorts. Idealism, etc. So, kind of just lay out for us um, the general kinds of uh, uh, headings or buckets of how people group different ideas for for consciousness, and then you can kind of talk about. Um, why there hasn't been so much of a space for the naturalist approach, which is the one that you kind of uh, marches through uh, in the book. Yeah, I'm sure. Happy to do so. So for a long time in philosophy, a kind of dualist view of matter and mind was the most popular perspective where you thought of, well, matter can exist, but minds are really something so distinct, almost of an entirely different substance. We need to have an entirely different view of what minds consist in. And this dualistic tradition has, of course, been very strongly associated with religions, although it's not necessarily an ingredient of religions. Uh, have been clergy, uh, uh, Buddhists, so forth. No, the mind can be considered part of um, this material world, perhaps. And when we think of naturalists, then naturalism can sort of be understood at least is it often as science being able to give us an account of what minds are, what consciousness is, this capacity to feel, have qualitative experiences, right? Whereas for some people, naturalism isn't the answer. They think consciousness cannot be ever perhaps explained by scientific means, just doing more neuroscience, psychology, uh, biology, physics, and so forth they think won't help us to understand consciousness. And one reason I have argued that we actually haven't embraced naturalism all that much is because we haven't actually thought a lot about how consciousness evolved. So it's almost treated as this 
property that at some point magically came into existence and humans have it and all other animals lack it. Rather, is this yeah, complex phenomenon which was gradually built together where you might describe um, other species, other biological individuals uh, on the evolutionary trajectory towards humans as having this kind of quasi-gradual, semi-hemi, demi-consciousness, as Dennett might call it, um, where they're not unconscious, they're not not conscious, but they're also not conscious in this kind of sense that we often talk about in the human case. And here the naturalist really has a good resource to make sense of minds as something that gradually comes together rather than this very complex thing we often think about in the human case where it seems like this seems so different from the natural world. It just doesn't seem like naturalism can give us a good answer here. And my hope really was to make use of evolution to think better about these issues. Now, you said panpsychism is becoming more popular, perhaps to explain that briefly. Panpsychism um, sometimes is described as a kind of dualist view, but you could also think of it as a more monist view, where we think um, rather than eventually us having a science of the mind that sort of adds to matter, we rather understand um reality as existing as sort of these properties that both have mental and physical aspects to them and then in any atoms you might uh, find this aspect of mentality and as they come together consciousness becomes more complex but it is perhaps found even in the most rudimentary systems and one can see the kind of appeal here because it would bridge perhaps this explanatory gap where consciousness in this complex human form suddenly comes into existence, it doesn't seem to make much sense. Um, whereas I believe that if you take an evolutionary approach, a lot of the sort of the positive appeal of panpsychism is taken out of the sails, where we think, oh, well, if we can think of consciousness as this complex property that is gradually built with different dimensions, it no longer seems as mysterious where we would need to radically revise our image of physics, uh, the natural sciences. No, it's just something that is complex and gradually built with cognitive uh, neurological capacities, and we might perhaps even reconstruct in some very complex AI systems. So what is it, I guess, that is so powerful about the naturalist approach and the evolutionary approach. You mentioned the work of Donald Griffin and his kind of cognitive ethology and how your, your book really is following in that tradition. So kind of uh, push out even more of what the, the what other kind of uh, systems are missing with uh, an evolutionary naturalist approach and maybe describe uh, his work with cognitive ethology and how you continue to to take that even further. Yeah, sure. To give some uh, short biography of Donald Griffin, I think he's often yeah neglected in consciousness science among philosophers as well as scientists more generally. Um, Donald Griffin, some may know him as the discoverer of bed echolocation together with another student. Um, which was in the heyday of behaviorism, where everything in animal behavior was explained with very simple mechanisms, uh, reinforcement learning. And there wasn't really room for any kind of cognitive uh, processes or any complex forms. 
So the idea that bats could echolocate seemed ludicrous to scientists at this time, yet he convinced um, other scientists of this eventually. And because he experienced so much animosity, so much um, yeah, counter-opposition to these ideas, despite the overwhelming scientific evidence that he provided over time, he became a bit immune against this, this common anti-cognitive um, mental aspect attitudes that was just rampant in this behaviorist time, where people tried to explain animal behavior always in the simplest form, and sometimes coming up with very convoluted explanations that wouldn't require any kind of uh, cognitive mechanisms. And he led us away from this, and what he wanted to establish was his cognitive ethology similar to how ethologists have Darwinized behavior. Now, we think of the behaviorists, sometimes they're thought of as this kind of Darwinian approach because they wanted to imitate this kind of Darwinian revolution where we no longer thought of organisms striving towards something and that then over time organisms become more adapted towards the school, but rather organisms being shaped by the environment. Um, a kind of external process, an externalist point of view that was then applied by the behaviorists um, to these mental and behavioral aspects, where we just explain behavior in terms of what kind of environmental changes happened, where we change environments for pigeons, we can um, condition them to engage in different behaviors, and some behaviorists thought, depending on we change the environment, we can make humans do anything, right? Um, but the ethologists thought differently about behavior. It wasn't so much about this externalist idea, but rather to think about the evolution of traits. Um, what are the adaptive benefits different behaviors confer for different animals? So the idea of cognitive ethology wasn't to do this externalist uh, kind of approach, but rather think about what different cognitive uh, and mental abilities uh, would confer some evolutionary benefit to different animals. Right, to really think about this from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and he kind of got the ball rolling there where animal cognition became a bigger field. And in the very first issue of the journal, uh, Animal Cognition even published an article saying, this is great, but when I found it or tried to found this new discipline I called cognitive pathology, I really wanted people also to investigate animal consciousness. And Whereas in the past, when people thought about the mind and cognition, consciousness was sort of seen as, yeah, part of this. Um, and over the last decades, we've seen a bit of a separation where a lot of people uh, argue they study cognition, cognitive processes, um, but that doesn't have to involve consciousness at all. And that's often a bracketed, is this more mysterious phenomenon. Um, but from his naturalist perspective, he really wanted to understand uh, subjective feelings from the Stavinian point of view, and unfortunately, not too many followed him in that, and often cognitive ethology was seen as the, a kind of more speculative enterprise that didn't involve a lot of empirical evidence. But in a way, you might think this is just a necessary step in the origins of any new scientific discipline. In the, in the first steps, this will inherently have to be speculative, and then we'll have to ask for experiments to um, get more data, and try to develop better accounts. And my book really wanted to yeah, take a step in, in these footsteps that 
Donald Griffin took and bring us more towards this mountain, perhaps you might describe it as uh, of our future science of animal consciousness, where we really make use of evolutionary thinking um, to integrate um, consciousness into the Darwinian revolution, just like the ethologists have done with behavior into the Darwinian framework, which nowadays isn't really questioned at all. But at their time, uh, thinking in evolutionary terms about behavior was still seen uh, with a skeptical lens. You uh, mentioned this pathological complexity thesis, and you cite the importance of Godfrey Smith's environmental complexity thesis and you know how this helps us understand these two things organisms as active agents and subjects of their subjective experience and it's really this problem of other minds and and the and how we understand uh this issue with other organisms namely in other animals so maybe talk about you can kind of uh, jump off here with the pathological complexity thesis and link that with godfrey smith's environmental complexity thesis and how there's this kind of active or participatory piece that uh, animals or agents can have with their subjective experience. Sure. Um, yeah, Godfrey Smith, Peter Godfrey Smith was one of my thesis advisors, in fact. And yeah, he might be familiar to some of your listeners as the guy who wrote the book Other Minds and wrote about octopuses and their possible conscious experiences. Um, but in his PhD thesis, uh, first book, um, he wrote about what he called the environmental complexity thesis, and he wanted to understand where the most simple form of cognition come from. He wasn't really concerned with consciousness, but he wanted to explain the origins of simple capacities, such as simple memories, um, simple sensory processing, um, as a response to more complex environments in organisms. And he drew on a lot of different traditions, uh, tried to make these distinctions between externalists on the one hand that want to explain organismal phenomenon through recourse on the environment, and then internalists who wanted to explain these properties of organisms, complex ones, in through recourse on other properties of organisms. Think about their goals, perhaps, uh, internal striving. Now, in a way, you might think, why I chose it in a way was because it was a nice framing. So environmental complexity thesis stated that uh, cognition evolved um, to enable these agents to deal with environmental complexity. And the thesis I defend in my book and work uh, in the recent years has been that consciousness evolved to enable agents to deal with pathological complexity. Um, but the similarities don't end there. It was, in a way, uh, seen as a kind of advance. There have been a, a couple of other authors, such as Fred Kaiser, who wanted to propose something of an internal complexity thesis, where they argued that cognition didn't evolve originally to deal with the complexity of an external world, but rather with the complexity of a multicellular organism. That this is really a difficult thing to organize, having this coherent agency and that here the origins of cognition are rather driven by making these um, multicellular groups almost, right, where you have these individual cells and there's some signaling going on in between. But that's nothing like a coherent agent that acts where all these cells work together in a richer sense, 
where you can talk of the whole system having representations working together in this richer sense, where we think of agency as something evolving. And the pathological complexity thesis, in a way, was intended as a hybrid between these views where we think about agency as a property that isn't either there or not, but rather it's something that can come in degrees where organisms can become more agent-like. And pathological complexity um, can be understood in terms of life history complexity. Now, what is life history theory? Life history theory is, in principle, concerned with um, different reproductive schedules. It's the trade-off between do I um, invest all my energy this year into reproduction and then die, or do I invest into having a longer life and perhaps having more offspring over the years, but if I die in, uh, very soon, then this would be the worst strategy. So there's this trade-off going on that all um, living systems have to face, and it's an economic problem. And economic problems are agent problems, right? Agents have goals, economic agents have goals, and they have to make trade-offs in terms of where they should make their investments. And life history theory, in a sense, is this economic theory applied to living systems where they have to deal with trade-offs. Now, we think about all the trade-offs organisms face rather than just reproductive schedules. We might think of this broader state-based and behavioral life history um, theory where you could express, at least in principle, all these trade-offs organisms undertake. And these trade-offs can be more complex or less complex, right? And my argument was that as this complexity becomes so um, uh, high, that there is this explosion almost in complexity where organisms suddenly would benefit from representing the values of those different states to themselves and make those calculations themselves in their actions, where they have to solve these problems routinely every minute of the day and every decision they make, rather than just across the evolutionary timescale, across uh, individuals. It is here that it would be beneficial for a very simple form of consciousness to come into existence, um, what often is called sentience, the capacity to have positive and negative experiences where organisms can make trade-offs. This hedonic capacity, you might think of bentamite creatures, what, which I use in my book to um, describe this evolution of creatures that have the capacity to feel pleasure and pain and then can make these evaluative trade-offs. Right, and this was really the driving idea of my book and where I thought the environmental complexity thesis is useful, but it doesn't tell the whole story. We also need to focus on these internal states. And what are the internal states that organisms represent to themselves and make trade-offs about? And that was a guiding idea of the book. So I can I can see how there's this um how the environmental complexity thesis isn't enough and how you're trying to, with your work, you know, with the pathological, this kind of, uh, I guess you could say these internal states or maybe even some attributional qualities. And one of the interesting things here is how you talk about, so I, we haven't defined consciousness yet, so we'll, we'll get there. But one of the things I'm interested in is, cause I think there's a, We'll, we'll talk about Ledoux uh, in, in, further in the conversation, but there's this kind of debate about, okay, well, where does where does consciousness arise? Where do we see that happen? Is it this kind of like, uh, you know, like kind of like for uh, for religious people, right? 
you know, if you talk to Catholics, they'll say like, well, at some point in evolution, we believe in evolution, but at some point, boom, someone gets a soul. I feel like some people do this as well. They say, well, at some point, consciousness evolves somewhere, but you go all the way uh, where, you know, the Cambrian explosion about 500 and some million years ago was tremendous. That's how we have this big explosion of mammals diversifying and expanding on the planet after one of the extinction periods. And so your claim is that consciousness arose during this Cambrian explosion. So maybe talk about what's the evidence for how you come to that uh, point. And second, what, what was it a kind of a precursor to consciousness as we know it now? Did it over millions of years evolve or did it kind of just already stay as how we know it today? Can we just talk about why you think it's there and what that journey looks like? For consciousness and in, uh, in, in animals from from uh, that period long ago. Yeah, sure. It's a lovely question. Um, the idea that consciousness evolved during the Cambrian explosion has become more popular in recent years due to Peter Godfrey Smith, for instance, as well as Simona Ginsburg and Eva Blanca in recent years, who've written on the evolution of consciousness. And one of the driving ideas that made them attracted to this was the fact that what we got around the Cambrian was this recognition of something like an animal lifestyle, right? When people think about animals, if you just ask ordinary people, they often don't think about um, something like sponges, right? Um, what people think about is this active lifestyle of animals where they have rich sensory motor capacities, they sense the world, they act, they have complex behaviors, they move around, interact with others. And even for Aristotle, this was the way he thought about animals as a particular kind of animal mode of being. And I agree with these authors. I think there is something very compelling about the idea that consciousness, this kind of feeling soul, uh, arose around that time. Um, now, your second point, um, that a lot of religious people think consciousness at some point sort of came suddenly into existence, popped into existence. It sounds a bit funny, and clearly that, that makes no sense. And yet, I, I suspect the great majority of people actually think of consciousness as this property that is either on or off. It's like a light switch. It's really hard for people to think about consciousness as something that can come in degrees, right? How could a light switch be anything but on or off? Well, we know there's dimmer lights, but perhaps that's just a lower degree of consciousness. There's still an on or offness to it. And often language perhaps isn't the most useful tool here, whatever words we use. There's no guarantee that, it, that these tools, these metaphors, best help us to express reality. Um, so we shouldn't make too much about the fact that it's hard to imagine what a, a much poorer form of consciousness might look like. But I really like to, to yeah, emphasize this idea that in between non-consciousness and what we associate with human consciousness, there can be things in between which we wouldn't want to put into either category. And then perhaps we could draw more categories in between where we wouldn't want to put these subcategories again, right? And where we can really emphasize the richness and degrees consciousness can take with much richer forms of subjectivity. Think of a point of view. Is that 
a necessary property of any kind of subjective experience? Some have argued that it is. Um, think of William James, part uh, of psychology. But just because this might be a necessary feature of what we think of human experience, it's not really a good argument to, to say that this then must be a necessary feature of experience. Um, Dennett often uh, criticizes these kind of arguments in philosophers that we fail to um, or fail to recognize that these features of our own experience, they don't have to be necessary feature of reality, right? Um, so when panpsychists, in a way, make the same mistake, um, although you might think they take the right approach, if you think consciousness cannot come in degrees, it's either on or off, then perhaps it makes more sense to think that consciousness has always been there. It's just a different aspect of reality. It seems like then perhaps we don't have to explain this weird point where it suddenly pops into existence, which I admit is a very strange way to think about consciousness. And in a way, I think panpsychists are, are right here. If you take this very strong view of consciousness as something that can't possibly come in degrees, then panpsychism suddenly makes a lot of sense, because how else would you explain the sudden appearance? Um, but why should we think that consciousness cannot come in these degrees, in these poor forms, semi-consciousness, as then it might call it again? And this is really what I wanted to emphasize with my um, book on evolution of consciousness. Um, so Godfrey Smith, uh, in his environmental complexity thesis, he wasn't really concerned um, with any subjective states. Um, and in his more recent work, he also defends a more kind of hybrid view where he takes um, Fred Kaiser's work more serious, the kind of internal complexity views. And a lot of his recent work was trying to emphasize this more, collaborate with these kind of researchers. A lot of this work, for instance, is going on in Spain. Um, you might have heard of uh, work for, about uh, inactivism, organizational theories of functions and cognition, um, the kind of work that emphasizes these agental aspects of biological systems, which for a while at least have been connected in more traditional Darwinian the more traditional Darwinian literature, and you could build bridges here. So I've been very much inspired by Godfrey Smith here to find, um, yeah, less radical, more, more, more hybrid approaches that try to build bridges between these different theoretical approaches that help us to understand reality rather than to defend very strong theories um, that are meant to provide this completely different view of reality from older theories. And I admit, in, in the history of philosophy, this is often how traditions go. One major framework is replaced with another. That's the complete opposite in a way. Um, but I'm not sure this is how philosophical progress really um, can be best undertaken. Try to be a more of a moderate here. Way. Try to find what are the best aspects of different theoretical frameworks, what do externalists get right in the emphasis on environmental feature? That's obviously something that is extremely important when we think about evolution of organisms that are malleable, are formed by natural selection. But then also we can't neglect these agental features that are obviously extremely important if you think about consciousness. Agency is something that evolves across evolutionary time. And my emphasis on pathological complexity was really this emphasis on agental complexity. It's really 
trade-offs that organisms have to make. And as they become, gain more complex capacities to represent these trade-offs to themselves, they become more agent-like. They develop these kind of proto-desires, proto-wants, and ways of um, calculating these values, how much they put importance on different things, and then make decisions in their own right. And as we can make sense of agency as something that gradually comes into existence, then subjective experience also becomes this a gentle feature that becomes richer as agency increases. So it's, I'm, I'm curious here. I mean, maybe we can make this a, yeah, let's make this a footnote and we'll come back to it. But I wonder, you've been talking a lot about agents and agency. And I'm thinking of the much uh, discussed and debated uh, concept of free will. Uh, Kevin Mitchell has a new book out uh, you know, called Free Agents, where he basically does this view that many organisms at the neuro uh, level and the biological level have agency in which way that things are going and that this is a kind of free will. And then others, um, such as uh, Sapolsky, think otherwise. And then you have uh, Dennett, who does the compatibilist view. So free will starts to come in here when you're talking about agency or as an agent in the world. So I, I'm Curious for your thoughts on where you find that too. Of course, we could spend you know six hours talking about the debates on free will and agency and that, but we, maybe as a, as a footnote. So before that, though, um, let's let's. I know this is kind of hard to do, but I guess we can do our best. There's two parts to this question. So how do we define consciousness, um, and why is this been so difficult? You can talk about the hard problem here. David Chalmers has talked about it and others. Um, and how does Darwin's philosophy of nature help us define that? Second, kind of connected, many times we think of consciousness as somewhat linked with subjective experiences, but I'm curious for within the world of philosophy, how much daylight is between, or is there any, is, it, is there's too much overlap of subjective experiences, right? So, so, so someone as a subject and they're having this idea of, you know, this is what's going on for me and this is how I'm, I'm understanding the world as opposed to, I would say, a more uh, kind of a total gestalt experience of the phenomenology that someone is having. So you have the objective experience, a subjective experience, and then what it's like to be in context and what the total summation of all that is. So how do we define consciousness uh, and how philosophy of nature helps us define it? And then what's this kind of relationship between subjective experience and, and phenomenology? Oh, yeah, thanks. Great questions. Uh, let me address the footnote together with the definitional question. Now, if you think about consciousness and free will, obviously we have to answer what do we even mean by these terms? And a lot of disagreement in the field is just due to disagreement about what it means for a creature to have free will, for a creature to be conscious, right? Uh, for a lot of scientists, they really hate talking about the term consciousness because they think, it's just used in so many different ways, hundreds of different ways. So using it is just not scientific because what, what do we even mean here? We can just use a replaceholder term for it, give it a precise meaning that would be more scientific. And in a way, I think they're right. Consciousness has been used in so many different ways. It is, leads often to confusion, similar with free will. Um, my own intellectual trajectory, I used to be. Um, 
an incompatibilist, I thought, well, really, it would violate the laws of physics if <laughs> there could be this free will that is immune from the laws of physics. But I've, over time, I became more of a compatibilist um, where I realized that it wasn't so much to try to create this very complex account of how it would somehow work where you can have both the laws of physics and this independent perhaps, laws of the mind, but rather to say, look, we don't have to be a slave to our old terminology. Even if you think of free will traditionally as um, this kind of spiritual force almost, that is completely separate from the physical world. That is not how we have to define free will. That might not be a useful way to think about free will. Similarly with consciousness, the way we often use this term, perhaps as a kind of soul, that's not a very useful way of talking about this. Perhaps sometimes we can change the meaning of terms to be more useful, to be more in line with science. And for many scientific phenomena, this is what happens. A lot of our ordinary folk concepts think of energy, think of motion, they have been revised in the light of modern physics. And for people like Dennett, um, they just think that we can do the same for these terms that are more perhaps ingrained in our folk understanding of the mind, of what it means to be a free agent, where we can keep a lot of what we realize are important aspects of our lives. There is a meaningful difference between between us making decisions and a stone uh, just being flicked around by, say, water, strong winds, different animals. There is a difference, right? There are internal dynamics going on where we can describe systems as being more or less free, more or less agent-like. And you're completely right. When I talk about consciousness, I really emphasize agency and action which really brings the problem of free will and consciousness very closely together, where we say, well, if this organism is more agent-like, it's also, we can say, more free. They have control over their degrees of freedom, which is a very Denetian view um, that I also defend. Um, so I'm very close to him here. Now, to define consciousness and free will, I think a useful way defining these terms. I'm not saying it's the one and only, there's this, this one truth. No, these are just linguistic terms. It's up to us to decide what are the best ways of defining these, right? And if there's disagreement about definition, then we should just break it away and talk more about the substantive disagreements. So I think a useful way of thinking about free will is to say, look, there is not an absolute sense of freedom. That just doesn't make a lot of sense, especially from an evolutionary perspective, right? We can recognize how children, for instance, have less freedom in their decision-making capacities than adults. If you're intoxicated, right, um, I am not, not sure any uh, opponent of free will would want to say, oh, there's no difference between someone who's really drunk or on a steering wheel from someone who hasn't drunk anything, right? Um, so there is a difference with intoxication. Um, you can develop um, perhaps through meditation, uh, through, I don't know, guidebooks, perhaps more greater senses of self-control where you can push your momentary desires more into the background. You can take more agency over across yourself, across time, and perhaps that makes you freer in a sense, right? 
And I think these are important senses of freedom um, that get neglected if we just talk about a sort of immuneness from the laws of physics. And now similar for consciousness, um, I think the term is typically used in two senses. Um, you might have heard about the heart problem. You mentioned it, obviously. For our viewers, perhaps we can easily explain it as this idea that even if we can explain all these complex cognitive processes, the functional aspects, the mechanistic aspects of experience in humans, of complex experiences, whatever form they might take, this doesn't explain what has any experiences at all in the, in the sense of why there's a feeling associated with it. Couldn't this be all done unconsciously? Co complex cognitive processing, just like in computers, AIs, very complex AIs perhaps. Why don't we have that? And the idea is that even if we explain all these mechanistic, functional, neuroscientific aspects of consciousness, we haven't explained the qualitative aspects at all. That is what Chalmers believes, or Thomas Nagel, for instance. Now, like Dennett, I don't think that's true. As we explain these other aspects, I think we actually do make a lot of progress on these qualitative questions when we try to understand why there are creatures that have to make these complex evaluative trade-offs, that have to deal with topological complexity, that need this common currency for making evaluations, then actually here, qualia-like states make a lot of sense. States that have a qualitative experience associated with them. And so now we can typically think of consciousness as these two senses. One is we associate it with a rich kind of human experience associated often with language, a, a rich sense of self, typically self-awareness, a kind of awe. I exist as an entity in the world. And this is how a lot of people in the public think about it. But now typically in philosophy and the, the science of consciousness, there's more of a more of a importance put on the qualitative side, just any kind of qualitative states. Um, Godfrey Smith makes a very good point here that this has not always been the case in the philosophy of mind, where the problem of qualia and the problem of consciousness have been treated as distinct, right? Where consciousness was treated as complex cognitive processing, which had qualitative aspects to it, um, but it was more about these complex human experiences, whereas qualia were seen as more these simple states, any kind of qualitative experiences. But nowadays, in the kind of Chalmers-Nagel tradition, those two problems have been merged into one, and I'm, a, uh, I'm fairly convict, uh, convinced here that having merged these two problems into one actually has led to less philosophical pro progress because we, in a way, merge the difficulty of both into one, where we are asking people to both explain very complex human experiences at the same time as the origin of the very most simple kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. And I try to bracket these two very completely away from each other. I'd really try to explain the most simple states of experience and then how these could become more complex with different um, challenges in animal lives as they have to deal with very different trade-offs that can cause them pathological states, that can cause them problems, opportunities, and they have to make different trade-offs where different capacities become more useful. Think of small monkeys, perhaps. Uh, Kim Sterelny once made this argument that um, animals, uh, very small monkeys, uh, wouldn't need a rich self-concept 
because their own body isn't as much of an obstacle in trees, whereas for larger monkeys swinging around in trees, their own weight uh, might cause them to fall, branches might break, um, and they need a more rich concept of their own body within the space where there can be obstacles, uh, where, need a, where they need to balance their weight more. And as we think about these very different ecological strategies animals play, these distinct life history strategies, we can make better sense of what kind of subjective experiences it would be useful to have for different animals in different ecological situations. And that is a very different naturalist approach that is very much indebted to Donald Griffin's cognitive ecology. So where here, that, that was, was very, very helpful. I actually really liked the, the, the bit there about what you said about uh, the terms. Um, I agree with you. We need to, I, I, I really despise arguments about the definitions. It feels such like a waste of time. I think it's more of uh, how are we talking about the concepts we're meaning with those? So you might call it something different, but we're talking about it at bottom underneath you know, the same concept, which I think is, which I think is right. We should talk about those more than just what we call or what we define it by. But so I thought that was very, very helpful. So to tell us, you were kind of hinting at some of it there. What are these Darwinian concepts of the mind or organism? So this is in your wheelhouse, if you will. He has this telonomic theory of, of evolution by natural selection uh, that later ethologists do have for understanding animal minds and consciousness. So where do we see this rise of behavioral ethology for understanding behavior? But kind of really, if you have this engine of sorts of natural selection, um, how does that help us understand uh, the conscious mind or consciousness in organisms? Uh, so, so kind of expand a bit on that understanding this kind of philosophy of nature and how we're trying to understand consciousness. Sure. So when I talk about teleonomic, um, not for many, this term might not mean anything. It's a kind of intended term as a replacement for an older Aristotelian tradition where we thought of teleological systems, school-directed systems, where we explain biological phenomena through recourse on the goal they are directed towards. And for a lot of scientists, this seemed very unscientific because it would mean that we explain um, biological traits in the here and now through recourse on the future. But that's not the way scientific explanations work. Typically, we refer to past states that then explain how things are now through the recourse on models, laws, or other means, at least, mechanisms. Um, and the idea of teleonomy was to say, look, we don't have to banish any talk of functions, goals um, for organisms where we talk about them in these more agental terms where traits can have functions that can be for things, right? Wings in birds can be for flying. Not all this language has to be banned. But the Darwinian revolution gives us a new way to think about these terms. So, again, this idea that we don't have to be a slave to how we thought about these terms in the past. Think of this idea of design without a designer. Right? Natural selection provides us a new way of thinking about design 
in a way that doesn't require intentional designers anymore. Mm -hmm. And similarly, all these other ways of thinking about agency, pathology, what does it mean for these terms to exist? It's a new way of thinking about them from a Darwinian perspective, an ethological perspective, where we think in terms of teleonomy. And it's just a replaceholder term uh, that I use simply as a Darwinian replacement of these older notions of thinking, a Darwinian justifications to talk about this functional goal-directed language. Now, consciousness, in a way, is very goal-directed, right? We typically think about desire states, uh, feelings being for something. These states don't just exist for nothing. And when we think about what these states might help organisms to do in the environments they have evolved in, or then we can think much better about why these states exist. They narrow this explanatory gap, why there's any benefit for having these states. Um, you mentioned Joe Ledoux before, uh, where he actually um, defends an idea uh, that consciousness is quite the latecomer feature. And what we think about fear systems in the brain was, is a kind of misuse of language because it's not at all clear that other animals have the subjective experience as we associate with those. And he has convincing arguments here. He himself has been guilty, of course, of using this kind of language in most of his scientific publications. Um, but a significant event that he talks about a lot is that um, we had medications for depression and anxiety developed um, to stop those mechanisms. Right. We studied these mechanisms in the brain that we called the fear system, associated with anxiety. But when we uh, stop these systems from operating in the way that we designed to do, or perhaps malfunction in here, what often happened is that humans were still stressed, anxious, and were still depressed. So it seems like the subjective experience actually is something distinct. It's perhaps a more of a kind of interpretation of something that goes on elsewhere in the brain. And I think it's a fairly compelling argument that just because we have this mechanism here in the brain that is responsible for particular kinds of information doesn't mean that it is here that this subjective experience sort of crystallizes. Um, however, that isn't to say that the system is relevant for subjective experience. Um, so we can have a more a moderate view here where we think, well, consciousness is more complex and it's more about these different systems in the brain coming together and sharing information. Think about this idea of a global workspace. And yet these systems are still relevant in the sense that they are ultimately responsible for um, states like fear experiences. Right. So think, for instance, of pain states, right? Um, we have these nociceptive sensors across our skin. They can experience, we often say in a more colloquial way, pains. But it's not like pain is experienced necessarily in the fingertips, but the brain sort of creates this body image where we have a sense that there is a pain in this particular spot, um, but it is perhaps and rightly so, a mistake to think that the pain is happening in the fingertip. And that's a kind of 
interpretation the brain creates that is useful for Darwinian organisms um, to sort of filter through all this information in useful ways for them. And I think the way where Ledoux goes wrong is to think that um, theories have to stay clear from using any subjective language until we finally figured out which particular parts of the brain are responsible for which subjective experiences. That's just not how science progresses. Um, and we've made a lot of progress in fine-tuning our understanding here. If you think about neuroscience in the past, they had very rough maps of very broad areas of the brain being responsible for different things. And now we have a much more fine-grained understanding of the brain. The brain is being much more flexible. And science is progressing here. That doesn't mean that all these scientists are completely mistaken in how they talk about states like fear. And I think when we think, for instance, about animal welfare researchers that are interested in really digging into which kind of positive experiences and negative experiences different animals are experiencing, they're actually making a lot of progress here that isn't often recognized, right? Consciousness researchers, in a way, are often biased towards just answering the question which systems are conscious and which aren't. But there's actually not as much emphasis on try, really trying to figure out which subjective experiences these systems have, which I think is the much more important thing to study, precisely because we don't really have a good agreement on what consciousness is. If there are these proto-conscious states that might be present in systems very much unlike us, think of very simple crustaceans, perhaps insects, this is where the debate is now shifting towards, then it seems like their subjective experiences would be extremely different from ours. But that doesn't at all mean that they couldn't have any. And this is where I think Ledoux goes wrong. He puts too much emphasis on the idea that um, a lot of recent medications have failed because they had a too simplistic understanding of the mechanistic basis of these subjective experiences. It's interesting. I I I, I want to come back to Ledoux on on a few other points. I'm glad you you, you brought him up. Um, I guess one thing here. So I guess two parts. So I want to get to um, the kind of consciousness profile. It's just very very elaborate and very very nice. So we can spend some time there. But before there, a few things here. So you say that consciousness has or should have, we would expect to see gradations and variations if it's an, if it's an evolved biological phenomenon. So what is that phenomenological complexity? How would that work across organisms? How could we measure that or study that? And it reminds me of the work of uh, Franz de Waal, who wrote uh, a great popular book, obviously he's, he's previously done you know, research on this as well but this book on you know or what's the title are we smart enough to know animals which is we don't even have if you go back to the, the hard problem like what is it like to be this animal well we have difficulty describing what it's like to be each individual unique human <laughs> so that's problem number one but the, the other problem is well what is it like to be this animal well how are we going to be able to know that we don't have the measures or, or instruments to know that or to test that we're always doing it from an anthropomorphic kind of stance so there's always going to be some issue there so how could we know um 
is it is it just theory alone or or how much of of the power of evolution tells us these variations of what consciousness would look like through time if we go back to the cambrian up till now but also for different organisms of what that experience is going to be like for the bee or the ape or the the lion or you know whatever the octopus how are we going to know is there going to be a lot of variation or or maybe there isn't maybe talk about what that would look like as an evolved biological phenomenon so i was very honored that franz de waal uh, wrote a book a cover endorsement for my book um, colin allen has a nice uh, anecdote here he once uh, went to a talk by Franz de Waal, and then he confronted him whether he would consider himself a cognitive ethologist. And after, well, edging around the topic a bit, he finally admitted that he considers himself kind of a cognitive ethologist. He tries to think about um, these creatures from a Darwinian perspective, think about their minds as something that is shaped by evolution and help them to deal with their environments. And he uses that frequently in his writing to help us better understand what might be going on in their minds and to move us away from this very anthropocentric view of these animals where we just apply theories that were not based on human tests and then just apply them to animals, right? Animals evolved uh, under different circumstances for very different life, living conditions. They have very different ecological problems to solve. They have different pathological complexity challenges, right? So that doesn't mean they just have um, poorer forms of our kinds of minds. No, they have different minds. Mm-hmm. And this idea of phenomenological complexity is very important because it leads us away of, from thinking of consciousness as something that is either on or off and towards thinking of consciousness as this multidimensional complex phenomenon um, which can be spread out across these different dimensions and animals, others than humans, Think of dogs, can have much richer senses of smell. Most humans would admit that can be the case. But then why couldn't we think this might be the case for other dimensions? Could an octopus have a richer bodily sense of self, perhaps, because they can mold themselves in all these different ways? Or is that an argument to think, no, that actually gives them a poorer sense of bodily self, because there isn't something like a fixed body. The bodies can contort in all these different ways. Um, where I think, ah, plausibly, they have a poorer sense of this bodily self. But perhaps that's the wrong way to think about it. It's just a very different sense of bodily experience where they can fold their bodies into these into the smallest parts to fit through tiny holes. And if you observe this behavior, it just seems a bit ludicrous how it's possible that they can do this. Um, but it's very important to think about it from this perspective. And I... Repeatedly in my book, refer to this very nice uh, opinion piece. Uh, Jonathan Birch, a philosopher at LSE, wrote together with Nikki Clayton and Alex Schnell at Cambridge, who are um, comparative psychologists interested in animal cognition. And they've done a lot of research on uh, especially animal uh, bird cognition in corvids and also cephalopod pods, uh, octopuses. Um, and Yeah, really, they wanted to emphasize in this paper that there can be different dimensions. They proposed five, um, which they called selfhood, evaluative richness, sensory richness, uh, then temporality, the experience of time, and a kind of unity of experiences, where all these experiences can be less 
um, more connected, you know, coherent sphere. And I think that was a very important idea. In my book, I didn't try to propose new dimensions because I think that would lead to needless conflicts where really we want to move the field away from this idea that consciousness is a single thing on one dimension, perhaps. But it is something that can come along these different dimensions. And then some species might be richer in one dimension, whereas others are richer in one dimension. And making it hard to say one is more conscious than another, precisely because there are these different dimensions, right? And I think that would lead to a lot of progress in how we understand um, animal minds here. And this is where the slogan by Franz de Waal, I think, is very important. It's very hard for us to even conceive um, or for other animals to be smart in their own ways, for the distinct problems they have to solve, right? And perhaps the kind of problems humans face aren't the ultimate standard for what we should think intelligence is. There's a lot of 100% rig bias here, of course, where for a long time we thought about human uniqueness as being uniquely perfect, uniquely the best, the best kind of intelligence. And the field is moving away from that slowly, admittedly, but we are moving away from it. And this idea that there could be these different dimensions is really helping us to flip this picture on its head where we have a non-anthropocentric point of view, a Darwinian point of view, a bottom-up approach rather than top-down approach, where we think about the ecological challenges first and what kind of minds are best equipped to deal with them. So humans have a very distinct and unique kind of environment that they have to deal with, and very different minds will be best for that than um, for a cephalopod roaming the oceans or a bird flying around and having to deal with also this complex three-dimensional space, right? Whereas we are much more confined to the, uh, to our feet, at least, unless we use other kinds of machinery. Um, but I think this is really the crux, in a way, of a Darwinian approach, that we try to move away from the idea that we need to have a final theory of human consciousness and then we just use it off the shelf and apply it to other animals. That won't work. And as many have recognized, firstly, their brains are just very different. So as we move away further and further um, from our common ancestors, right, further and further away from our last common ancestors with different animals, these, uh, this kind of approach will fail us because very different kinds of minds might have evolved there that don't have to be the same as in the human race. So really my approach tries to think about these evolutionary pressures. And to give some examples here, uh, one argument that has been given uh, in recent years often is that birds might be a good case study for the disunity of consciousness. Why? Because there's a lot of specialization of labor going on in the two brain halves. They don't seem as connected as if you think about the human brain. And yet that seems to be a bit of a mistake because there's a lot of information exchange nonetheless going on. And yet if you think about their ancestors uh, of birds, um, more reptile-like creatures, of course, birds are also reptiles, um, then here we find the brain halves being far less connected. Similarly in fishes, fishes seem to have these two brain halves that are far less connected than their ancestors would have been. And both the evolution of mammals and humans on the one side and birds on the other is the evolution of the brain halves then becoming, again, more connected. 
Um, so we have to make space in our evolutionary accounts for the fact that in some time, and sometime in evolutionary history, brains became um, more disunified. And then it makes a lot of sense to think, well, if these creatures had any kind of consciousness, even if it was more simplistic, then it would seem that their conscious experiences might become have more disunified, perhaps developing into two distinct streams of experiences. And there are a lot of birds that can fly, for instance, while one of the brain halves is engaging in sleep, sometimes called unihemispheric sleep. Uh, similarly, dolphins uh, are capable of this. And it isn't at all implausible that you might have even dream-like states in one of those brains while the other brain is operating, uh, engaging with the environment, uh, processing sensory data. And it's just that the way humans engage with the natural world, having unihemispheric sleep isn't just very useful here. But for different animals, we might think, well, it's not at all clear that conscious experience must come in a single stream. Why must we think that this is a necessary property of experience? And so in this book, I often try to challenge ideas about what some philosophers or scientists have argued must be a necessary property of consciousness. Um, for instance, uh, think about integrated information theory of consciousness as this idea that the unity of consciousness is the fundamental property of experience. If you can explain um, how this unity comes along, then this is where we see consciousness coming into existence. But this picture I've given you here with the evolution of um, brains becoming less unified gives us a good counter-argument to think that that is perhaps not necessarily how consciousness must exist, right? Why must we think consciousness must be organized in this way? Perhaps this is one way of organizing experiences into a very beneficial way. Um, after all, if all these experiences would just be flickers of lights, different colors, different streams, different senses, and there's no way of bringing them together, yes, perhaps that seems um, less useful. But why do we need all experiences blending in together? Um, you might have heard about uh, this condition, synesthesia, where some humans, um, when they see colors, they smell them, or they have a particular taste and they have a color experience. Um, they think of particular events and they have associated color streams coming into their senses. And for them, it's often described as a kind of chaos. They have a hard time dealing with the sensory overload. So if you think unity of consciousness is this great thing that is a fundamental property of consciousness, why don't all these experiences merge more together as in synesthetic um, individuals? No, it's just... There's neurodiversity, and we have these different degrees of unity, even in different humans. We just have to listen to different humans and their own experiences. They can be very different. For a long time in philosophy, there was this assumption, no, all humans experience the world the same way. And we're moving away from this idea. That was a big mistake. And once we've overcome this, we can clearly recognize that this will be the same for animals. Animals also experience the world in very different ways. Yeah, and no, I think that that's that's a, a great great explanation, especially towards the end there of all the even within humans. But why wouldn't it be the same for other organisms that they're going to be able to experience the world in different ways? Um, which is super fascinating to think about. I actually long time ago when I was first starting the podcast, I think one of the first couple episodes, uh, I did have uh, Alex Schnell on the podcast, and, and we talked about uh, cephalopods and 
if, I, if memory serves, this has been a while. It's probably been about uh, two, two and a half years now. But uh, if memory serves, we had a really nice conversation about the distinction. So we talked mostly about octopus. Um, but we this distinction between um, uh, different types of learning as opposed to intelligence um, and then as further opposed for consciousness. Uh, and I can really respect a lot of her uh, preciseness of trying to say, well, it's just, you know, they're, they're intelligent. And it's like, well, these distinctions are important because you can do associative learning or because you have some memory. It doesn't exactly equate intelligence. Um, uh, it's probably, I think, I don't want to misquote her, but I think she's likely that there is definitely some intelligence for octopuses and maybe other cephalopods. But, you know, in this way where they're these super intelligent creatures or something is maybe too far. And I think she kind of punts on the consciousness bit of, well, we can't know it or, you know, maybe or, you know, we'll see or, you know, things like that. But she's not, uh, I don't think she's very definitive on it, but I think doing more research on it is, is good. So it, it, that conversation has been a while, so I, I may have forgotten some of it, but listeners can check out that conversation I had with her. So, so, so yeah, so let's, let's get into it a little, I guess, more specifically. Um, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll set you up here with a bunch of different things and you can just lay it out. But in the book, you talk about these consciousness profiles that were kind of, uh, done by the work with Birch and Clayton. Uh, again, you mentioned uh, selfhood. So under there you have theory of mind, self-awareness. Um, I think in there, that part you mentioned DeWall, who looks at multiple uh, sensory modalities is being involved with the same idea of kind of this mirror self-recognition. I know that there's been some questions or skepticism about how the mirror recognition tasks, what it really is measuring. Um, some people are saying, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily equate to theory of mind, but maybe. Uh, you also talk about uh, university experience, so synchronistic and, and, and others. You talk about sensory experience and then the evaluative experience, which we were talking about earlier with some of the work with Ledoux. And, you know, his, here's some of your disagreements with him on, on valence and how other animals experience subjective experiences and emotions, uh, et cetera. So anyways, just kind of give us this, this uh, overview and some of the specifics on this kind of suite of consciousness profiles with selfhood and experience and different types of you know, sensory and voluntary types of uh, elements. So, you know, you'll, I'll give you as much run, uh, runway there to kind of explain all of these, these concepts, but what the, what's the kind of, as you mentioned, this unifying thing that consciousness unifies uh, or connects all these experiences. So it kind of, you know, kind of give us the, the, the through line there as well. Yeah, wonderful point. I mean, one objection you might have to a kind of multidimensional view is to say, oh, as we break consciousness apart into these different dimensions, perhaps there isn't a unifying feature worth calling consciousness anymore here. And I would say that's partially right. So partially the idea that there's this one unique property and it's either there or not, that, is, that idea is kind of being undermined. And yet we can still recognize that for a lot of these features, they have certain commonalities and they at least have to partially come together, right? Um, if you do experiments for many of these dimensions, whether it is different memory capacities and different evaluative capacities, 
often in these tests, you're not just simply testing one of those dimensions, whether an animal has a more unified experience uh, or whether they have a richer sense of self. Often you also assess then their sensory capacities as well as the different evaluative capacities. So, of course, for different skills, for different forms of lear learning to evolve, as you mentioned, um, different capacities will have to come together to some degree of complexity. Um, that doesn't mean that some animals can't have much richer forms of experience on one dimension than others, um, but it sort of at least suggests that some of them will come as something like a bundle and make organisms recognizably more subject-like than others. Now, while it might be hard to make comparisons in some cases where we have an organism perhaps that has very rich sensory capacities, um, perhaps a very rich sense of smell versus another organism that has a poor sense of smell but a very rich sense of vision, and perhaps here it is kind of hard to say that one is more conscious than another, in other cases, um, these comparisons will be more reasonable. Um, so the answer is kind of um, both a yes and no, right? Um, in some cases, it won't make sense to say, oh, this organism is clearly more conscious than another. But then in other cases, it's just obvious from the different dimensions um, that some species do have richer capacities in all these dimensions, perhaps, where just obvious that they are more subject-like, where they have a richer sense of agency. And it just makes sense to call them more conscious. It's conscious then is more of a short-term uh, short here. Um, you mentioned Alex Chanel and how she talks about intelligence. I mean, it's common in comparative um, psychologists to say, oh, well, how do we define intelligence? It seems ill-defined. Let's be precise, talk about these different forms of learning, and they can be very complex and surprising. And then, look, perhaps we didn't believe that this very simple creature, a simple cuttlefish, would have been able to engage in this complex behavior. Uh, you recently had this outcome from her work, I believe, that showed that cuttlefish can delay their gratification, similar to the marshmallow test in children, that some human children fail, mm. of course. Where that suggests, oh, well, maybe they're just like us in that sense, at least. Um, and it often then leads to perhaps a bit outlandish news articles that um, overemphasize how intelligent they are, make them seem more intelligent almost than all mammals and birds, where octopuses are sometimes depicted as these alien-like creatures, the only animals that have human-like uh, intelligent experience. And that's uh, completely overblown, of course, but perhaps uh, there's some attraction to this idea in the general public. Um, but yet to recognize that there can be these very complex behaviors that require forms of intelligence that we didn't believe would be there are, I think, very important. And this is why a lot of this precise work on identifying these different forms of learning that different animals are capable of is very important to make progress especially as we uh, make more progress on identifying which forms of learning seem to involve conscious experience. Now, I argued in my book that sentience, the capacity of positive and negative experience, is the most rudimentary form of experience, just the kind of common currency of pleasure and pain. Um, 
And this is then much more evolutionary widespread than perhaps more other and more rich capacities. I argue that sensory richness, perhaps what often is associated as the most fundamental property of consciousness, whether we see something as red or blue. I think this is something that comes later that sort of helps to make this capacity that associates in different states being plus or minuses. Um, can have richer representational capacities where we can make more discriminations, we can distinguish different states, assign different values to them in a better way uh, from a more agent-like perspective where there's not just a lot of parallel processing going on, but there's some filtration where there's something like a single agent looking at this information and then making the ultimate decision. Um, some of that is definitely the case in these animals and then these decisions are made in a fairly quick way and as you have the sensory discriminations becoming richer. You'll also get something like a distinction between yourself and the outside world. Um, I think these, sense, these selfhood capacities are just a natural outcome of um, both the evaluative side and the sensory side of consciousness where if you have these richer um, desire-like states that just makes you more self-like where you have richer representations of your own wants similarly as uh, these can be represented across time and at a time more unifiedly I think selfhood also increases so you get a bit of a feedback loop between these different dimensions um, which are, I think very helpful um, to construct um, consciousness profiles for different animals. We currently have one paper under review where we try to assess um, the dimensions of consciousness in Corvids in much more detail. I don't want to give too much away because it's still under review. But yeah, we really try to push this idea that we can investigate these different dimensions in different animals. That it's not just speculation. Of course, it is still very much speculative compared to some other tests, whether we just want to identify whether an animal is capable of this form of learning or not. Um, it is more of a, more like fitting a puzzle together, where we draw on a lot of different experiments to make the best sense of what these animals are likely experiencing or not. Right? We're trying to have the best possible answers here, where, you know, not saying anything being completely neutral isn't actually the most scientific approach. We're trying to have the best and most plausible account, and this might very well be a very speculative one, but then the alternative isn't to be completely silent. It's to develop better speculations, to gather more evidence, to make some speculations more empirically supported than others. And this is how the science will make progress, similarly how to how other sciences think of how... Um, human anthropology is trying to reconstruct the past based on often very sparse evidence and trying to reconstruct what different cultures might have been like, what things happened in ancient human civilizations. This is also happening on very sparse empirical evidence, but we're really trying to build the best models and accounts possible despite the sparsity of data. And consciousness science, in a way, is very similar. It's not unique um, as from other sciences that are also speculative. You might think of the social sciences as being inherently more speculative because there are so many different mechanisms, processes going on in this human world that are very complex. Things can so quickly change. 
There's not one unique explanation that can be given. You can give all kinds of different explanations that sort of seem compatible, sometimes less so. Um, it's much more about trying to make um, the most sense of the data and not so much about trying to find this unique answer that explains everything at once. Um, and we would learn here more from looking at perhaps biology in general, where we often try to just use an adaptationist perspective on these different um, aspects of, say, animal behavior, animal cognition, and then similarly think about animal consciousness uh, in this sense as well. And I admit in a moment it is very speculative, um, but it is far less speculative than it has been, say, 40 years ago, uh, 100 years ago. So it is now much more empirically grounded, this research, than it has been in the past. And we're steadily moving towards developing something like a science of consciousness here. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there is consciousness studies aren't the only thing that are, you know, in, in early beginnings of sorts and, and, and working with sparse data. I agree with you, and especially in the social science as well. It's more of my world and yikes, there's a lot of problems with social science research. Um, so yeah, just close the loop there. I'm curious on what is your opinion on, uh, maybe you can state Ledoux's perspective and then what your disagreement is, particularly on this, uh, you talked about it earlier, but particularly on this issue of um, valence and how others, other animals subjectively experience emotions. What's, what's his position and what's your disagreement? And then, and then tell us about the uh, integrated information theory of consciousness and how that places intuitions is, is very important. Sure. Uh, a lot of my opposition to Joe Ledoux is actually from how I think he misrepresents his opposition, depicts them as yeah, being more simplistically minded, having very naive views about how consciousness is connected to the brain, where sort of loosely quotes people as saying, oh, this, we have gathered more evidence about how this part of the brain um, is associated or we found out which functions it has. And then people say, oh, well, um, given that this part of the brain is perhaps responsible for stress, more, more stress signaling, and then we say, ah, oh, this part of the brain is responsible for anxiety. And of course, this move is often made too quickly, especially when we think about um, uh, how science is depicted to the popular audiences, and these conclusions are often overstated. But if you look at the actual scientific research, it's much more like, oh, well, given what we've learned about the, the functions, the mechanisms of these parts of the brain, it is not implausible to think that these might also be related to some parts of the subjective experience that we typically associate with these processes. Um, where it seems Ledoux wants to say, oh, that's completely naive. You can't say anything like that. Consciousness is something else entirely. And he wants at the same time to say that all this is all speculation, not very scientific. But at the same time, he's pushing his own view very strongly that consciousness is much more of an interpretation uh, that has something to do with language, a more old school kind of view. Um, but certainly has support in the sense that um, how we experience emotions is strongly connected with our social upbringing, language, culture. So there seems to be the strong interpretationist uh, aspect of consciousness. 
Um, but that's not at all co incompatible with a view of um, more simple states of consciousness as having a much more ancient evolutionary foundation. And then just consciousness has perhaps become more complex in the human case where we don't just experience simple negativeness, positivity, but really have these complex states like depression and we um, interpret these in very different ways uh, from how other animals would do it, especially. But that doesn't mean that other animals don't have these simple states like hunger, uh, fear. Um, so I'm much more in line there uh, with researchers like Kabanek, uh, for instance, uh, that have argued that, no, when we think about these simple motion-like states, they're probably very much evolutionary, ancient. And there's not really um, a successful argument that has been made that just because when we think about complex human emotions involving this interpretationist aspect, um, as this then being necessary for all kinds of emotional experiences. Mm -hmm. So where I think he's right, that interpretation, this constructive aspect of emotions is very important in the human case. I don't think that establishes that that must be a necessary feature of all conscious experiences. And we can see that even in the human case, as much as we can say that um, the construction of emotion is important, um, we still all have these very fundamental conscious experiences, like hunger, a kind of thirst for air um, when we are uh, underwater, right? Um, similarly, pains. Construction doesn't play that much of a role here. Now, we can control our emotions better than other animals can. And I think that's m even more of an argument to think that, look, in other animals, this aspect of emotions doesn't play as much of a role, and we shouldn't give this too much credit. Humans are unique here. Uh, in fact, have evolved to be less conscious, you might think. In my book, I only uh, sketch this speculatively at the end. Um, but if you think about the pathological complexity that animals had to face during the Cambrian as they evolved richer behavioral capacities, richer sensory capacities, where they suddenly had to deal with this very complex world, had to make choices all the time, that led to sort of explosion and pathological complexity. But then similarly, if you think about the evolution of humans, uh, early hominid societies, where you got barter and trade, um, that led to this whole new dimension of making trade-offs, where we had to think about um, the values of commodities, of trade partners, um, the value of work at one time versus another, storing some equipment, um, which required a much more complex form of evaluation, which couldn't really be handled with the simple hedonic manner. And we evolved this kind of separate form of evaluation on top. Uh, you surely heard of thinking fast and slow, type one and type two ways of thinking, uh, right? Where these basic conscious experiences somewhat seem to um, have more of a background role in our minds. Uh, they still exist, of course, but they're not as important anymore. Where these different areas of the brain sometimes can have more control, uh, have control even about how we experience this, uh, experience these more fundamental state. And this is why I think. Um, we don't have to say, look, just because it is true that interpretation 
um, goes on in the human mind, that doesn't mean that this is true for any and all subjective experiences. Um, so even for what uh, Ledoux wants to call danger circuits, I think that's not a really good term. Um, what are the danger circuits of the brain? You might think, well, danger can be just defined as anything that reduces fitness. Uh, in which case, well, yes, the brain trivially is made out of uh, fear circuits, uh, uh, excuse me, danger circuits, as he wants to reframe it. Um, but I don't think that's very helpful. Of course, the brain evolved in a manner to evaluate states that have uh, derived Darwinian fitness or could be detrimental to it. Um, that is trivial. The, the question really is why some brains evolve the capacity to represent some of these values in a hedonic manner, in a positive and negative experience. And then the idea isn't that there's some part of the brain that creates fear and another that creates hunger, but the emphasis is really on the central experience where everything comes together at a final common behavioral common path, where trade-off decisions have to be made, where these things conflict with each other and trade-off decisions have to be made. Um, and that fits a lot of the data uh, Ledoux provides, just like a lot of the data fits with the more simple aspects of experience, such as hunger, um, fear, and the like, right? It's still compatible, and the, the mistake is to think that we need to have a single account of emotions that applies to all of them, right? Some emotions can just be very different from others. And this is why some people talk about mood-like states as being very different from emotion-like states. Um, but so he's right about a lot of things. He says that people jump far too quickly from the particular mechanisms of the brain to, well, now we figured out how subjective experience works. Yes, that is often overblown, but it's not like we are not making any progress. We're certainly narrowing down our understanding, we're certainly getting closer to understanding how these particular parts of the brain are just the subjective experience of the world. So I think we can have a much more optimistic outlook here, um, especially if we look at how neuroscience has advanced over the last decades. Yeah, I, I, I like how you, you laid that out. I mean, I certainly, you, you mentioned some of the or touched on a little bit of the evolutionary ideas there about um, certain conditions, such as maybe depression or anxiety. And, and um, there's a there's a few folks for, for listeners, if they're interested in this, I've talked to. So Randy Nessie, obviously, is, is someone that's been doing the evolutionary psychiatry uh, uh, you know, program, and he's written a lot of great papers and still does, actually, and written a great book. Um, Ed Hagen, has a, he's, a, he's a trained anthropologist, anthropologist i could be wrong on that but he's written a bunch of papers on evolutionary framework for depression which is uh, superb and uh, my buddy uh laith al shawaf he's written a bunch of great stuff as well on evolutionary uh, capacity especially for um he's been doing some work on uh, hunger uh, which is interesting as an emotional system very fascinating stuff so kind of an evolutionary lens on uh on many things depression anxiety hunger, you know, fear, uh, et cetera. So that can be uh, uh, helpful for some folks. So, so real quick, uh, tell us about this integrated information theory and the importance of intuition. Um, and, and then where do we see this kind of uh, 
um, convergence and divergence of consciousness in other animals compared to or juxtaposed with humans? Sure. So for integrated information theory, which is yeah, becoming perhaps ever more popular, especially with the rise of AIs in recent years, IT was very explicitly designed to be a theory that doesn't say much about the biological specifics of consciousness and is very much applicable to AI systems uh, or any machine, uh, right? Because at least from a lot of pop culture, it has always been a popular idea to think that we might at some point create machines that have these subjective experiences, that have human-like cognition, intelligence, and ASAI increases in its cognitive capacities, we are ever closer to thinking, well, maybe this might be real. Um, now, the problem for me was that IET wants to say, look, once you have a certain degree of information integration complexity, system just is conscious. But it doesn't really answer um, what this information is for, what the system does with it, why it would be good to have that. Why, what's the adaptive benefit here? And sometimes there's a little bit of you know, speculative talk that, oh, yeah, well, as information is unified, that just is better for the system to have. And um, But this is why I talk about in my book about how um, in the evolution of fishes, in the evolution of um, reptiles, actually evolution saw a benefit in these creatures developing these highly disunified brains. And despite, despite developing greater cognitive uh, skills and abilities, right? And that was one of the main arguments against it. And while IT is very popular uh, among lay people, perhaps, the general public, it's just a very public theory. It, it offers especially an, a, a simple, at least proposed way of measuring it. Uh, scientists, especially neuroscientists, are very skeptical because really tries to stay fairly clear of the mechanistic side of how the brain um, is organized to create conscious experiences. We almost treat unity as this fundamental aspect. And there's some, uh, I think, um, objectionable, at least assumptions where the argument goes, well, we have to make some fundamental assumption about what consciousness is. We just say it's Unity, and then this theory follows from that. It's the best account of what consciousness is. If consciousness is unity, it's a fundamental property. And I think they're right to some extent. Look, why not just develop the best possible account of consciousness based on one of these dimensions? This has been done especially with um, selfhood and the sensory side of consciousness. There's a lot of theories of consciousness that try to explain all aspects of phenomenological experience, this phenomenological view of the world in terms of just sensory states. Pains are just seen then as um, just another kind of um, sensory state, uh, just inside the body rather than outside of it. Um, whereas you might think, oh, well, then for evaluative states, perhaps sensory states are just another kind of evaluation. Um, that we then have to um, perhaps filter out in terms of which states are important. There's a lot of information filtration going on here. And in a way, I think, well, I do defend the idea that sentience, the capacity to feel pleasure and pain, is the fundamental. 
But I don't really argue that all the other dimensions can be explained in terms of evaluation. It's more like evaluation gives us a plausible answer for why these other um, dimensions of subjective experience would have an adaptive benefit within um, this capacity. Um, whereas for a lot of other theories, it seems like suddenly you are left with this explanatory leftover of why do we get a rich kind of selfhood even if we explain the existence of sensory uh, conscious experiences or even if we explain the unity of experience why does consciousness then have these particular forms of evaluation or sensory processing it seems like with a lot of these accounts while they might explain one of the dimensions well and um, they then fail fairly poorly when it comes to explaining the other dimensions and and my answer was here that if we really drive home this fundamental Darwinian message, as is also defended by uh, Randolph Nessie in his uh, evolutionary medicine view of psychiatry, that we really have to emphasize the fundamental reason for having mentality at all, which is to improve fitness, then here evaluation makes very much sense as this fundamental aspect because there must be some way in which any of this mental processing bursts out in terms of fitness enhancing or decreasing behavior and then evaluation seems to always have to be present which is why i think it is very important um as the central feature um now there's other problems of integrated information theory there's no way of testing it because it's just asserting fundamentally that unity is this fundamental aspect and then it's more about um uh, putting to contrast different theories of consciousness based on different dimensions and how well they fit the data that we have. And that's one way of comparing theories. But I don't think it's the best. And it's, I think, a mistake to say that we need to fit all aspects of phenomenality um, into an account that's based on one of the dimensions, because it seems like that never gives us the best account. If we have more of a Darwinian approach that builds consciousness as something gradually like a flower um, with different petals representing different dimensions, perhaps, that seems to give us a much better understanding of consciousness that doesn't introduce any sudden gaps where suddenly another dimension pops out, but something that's gradually built. Uh, and that helps us to better understand um, these issues. I think it's really helpful for the animal case. It, it makes sense of why different animals would have very different kinds of subjective experience. So the, the last question that I have is a kind of, uh, I guess, a, a summary question here. So in talking about consciousness and talking about animal consciousness, how does understanding the origins of consciousness within a hedonic evaluative and pathological complexity uh, model of life help us to understand animal minds? So if, if you know, people have been listening to us and they can say, okay, this is, this is, this is great, Walter. This is great work. This is obviously great. But how does this help me understand animals and interact with animals in a you know, respectful and, and, and productive, uh, way, uh, you know, if, if at all, you know, and so what, what would you say, I guess, is the kind of summation of, of, of your arguments and also the potential applied utility, at least from a theoretical or conceptual way for, for people to say, okay, this helps me understand more of how or should 
uh, I can interact with animals more ethically and more quote unquote humanely uh, or respectfully, I should say. Great question. So, I mean, one thing people do is, of course, to say, look, once we decided that there's a high degree of um, probability that a particular animal feels pleasure and pain, we just stop eating them, for instance. That's one way of approaching it. Um, but that's very binary. And, and that's not really helping us to, um, to deal with these animals in any other way. Uh, if you think just about, oh, well, how can we help these animals have better lives or which actions do we take that lead some animals to have worse lives? And this is where animal welfare science is very important and fairly can be understood as a science of animal consciousness already, but focused on the hedonic side. That is, animal welfare scientists are interested in trying to understand which experiences um, of animals lead to suffering and which lead them to having more pleasure. And my framework is really designed to help us understand these uh, very different species in their ecological lifestyles with these different life histories, these different economic trade-offs they face, where it really asks us to look at their ecological lives, really study the lifestyles they live and the evolutionary pressures to let, that led to these lifestyles to understand what is important to their lives, right? What are they putting importance on in their lives? Um, and what are they perhaps neglecting? And this then helps us to understand how their subjective experience is going to evaluate these things. So if you have an animal perhaps in the zoo, um, say you have a penguin, right? Uh, for a penguin, it will be very important to have uh, enough fish. But then they might not like particular kinds of fish, and it depends on their nutrition profile. You really want to understand um, what they do in their natural lives. And it's not just to say that we want to recreate natural conditions perfectly, because there's a lot of things animals do in the wild that are just a necessary ingredient of their lives. Say, for some animals living in Africa, have to move great distances to go from perhaps uh, their feeding grounds to a waterhole, uh, which forces them to walk around for long times. Uh, whereas if you just provide animals in a very small enclosure with all these things, they might not have any desire to spend a lot of time walking around. They might be more like a lot of humans, that is, uh, lying on the couch. If we don't have to walk, we don't really want to necessarily, um, unless uh, we frequently engage in that and become small for habit. And often becomes more pleasurable. Um, this is not to say that we can just read off subjective experiences from uh, understanding these natural lifestyles, but it really helps us to provide us with a theoretical basis to make any speculative guesses um, for what their likely subjective experiences are. Right? One of the major problems in getting a science of animal consciousness off the ground has been the seeming um, appearance that People are just speculating. They're just making something up. That you could tell any kind of story based on the evidence. And one story isn't any more plausible than another. And the, the fundamental goal of the pathological complexity thesis was to provide us with the Darwinian framework in the spirit of Donald Griffin, where we look at these ecological lifestyles these animals live to make um, educated guesses that can then be tested 
right? Whereas most of consciousness science doesn't provide us with anything like this. Um, people say, well, this is a kind of subject of experience associated uh, with this behavior, perhaps, but there's not really a good way of testing that at all. Whereas this framework gives us a way of, based on what the ecological lifestyles are, gives us a way of making good predictions about what the subjective experiences are. And then based on the better tests we've developed for these different dimensions, we can then assess whether that is correct. And then we can both revise how we think these ecological conditions are connected with consciousness or vice versa. We might think, oh, well, maybe we've misunderstood um, these ecological lives these animals live. So actually studying the subjective experience of different species could then actually help us to give a better understanding of what the actual ecological pressures are. And this would be a greater revolutionary step for consciousness science, where studying consciousness isn't just um, an activity we almost engage in for its own sake, but something that can help us to understand biology and really integrate it into life sciences and i really hope that my book will help us take steps towards this constrained theoretical theorizing on the one hand but also help us to make better predictions that can be tested and feed back into better ecological research and yeah that's the brief closing words no that's that's uh that's wonderful uh again uh, the book is called uh, philosophy for the science of animal consciousness this is through uh, rutledge People can uh, get that now. Um, Walter, this was so much fun. I, I was really looking forward to, uh, to the conversation. I enjoyed reading your, your, your book. I think it's, um, uh, I, I've, I've done some, some informal polls and, and people really enjoy the conversations I have with folks like yourself talking about animals, animal ethics and consciousness. Um, I think animals are, are a very important part of human lives and people are very interested. So I, I hope this uh, spurs people on to, to buy your book and to, to look more into some of the researchers that we've mentioned and to continue to inform themselves. So a big, big thanks for, for you, for, for giving me your time and your energy and your brilliance. I, uh, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great to discuss my book in more detail with you. And I hope all the listeners yeah, I will come to appreciate that really understanding animal lives is the first step towards trying to understand what goes on in their minds better. And then we can help to make their lives better, or at least try to not make their lives worse based on all the ecological impact we are having. Absolutely. Thanks. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it.